0: I invite you to uh, join me in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter uh, 10, the title um, that I've, I've given to this uh, message, Fear God and Nothing Else. It's not original to me. This has become a battle cry of many believers. Um, th- th- there's, there's an influential man in our church family um, who over these last two years as, as the world and, and even the church has been gripped by fear has begun to pray regularly when he prays publicly, teach us to fear you and nothing else. And that's that's influenced me. So I I take that title partly from there. Um, In Matthew chapter 10, we're going to read a passage from verses 24 down to 34. But before we do, verse 28, I want to point your attention to, this is the hinge verse. This is the central idea verse. We want to read it and then go back and start in verse 24, read through the whole thing, and then we need to pray and ask God's help. So please look to verse 28. Our Lord Jesus speaks, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Back up to verse 24 with me and let's read the, the, the context. Verse 24, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops, do not fear Fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men... I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Let's ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, it is our request right now that you will show us your glory, that you will hallow your name, Bring us, O Lord, to revere you, to rejoice with trembling. Show us more of who you are. Show us that you are the judge of the living and the dead. Show us that you are the sovereign and majestic one seated in the heavens, ruling over all. And Lord, I pray that you will put inside of us a yearning to please you and that we just see Pains and enemies of the earth as small because they are. Help us, God. Give grace. Help me in the work here of communicating. Send your spirit. Bring fruit. Glorify your name. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. From the earliest days of Jesus establishing his church, exactly what he said would happen has been occurring in that his people have been tortured, mutilated, and put to death in absolutely savage and horrific kinds of ways. From the early believers who were fed alive to lions, to those who were burned alive at the stake, Baptists who were tied in sacks and thrown into water to drown, to a group that I've recently been spending some time with, and so I've been using them for a lot of illustrations here, There's, there was a group of believers who lived in Scotland during the 17th century who became known as the Covenanters. The Tyrant King in those days um, made a demand that every person say with their lips a message that declared that the king is the head of the church. He also began to impose some uh, Romish changes upon the church, and so as he did this and he made it the rule of law, the, uh, many of those in the, in, in the country there resisted by saying, well, you know, you can't do that, and he responded by saying, I'm the king, I do what I want. I am the head of the church, and when he said this, there were a number of churches and ministers and churchgoers who just put their head down, cowered, did what the king said, said the words out of their mouth in order to save their lives. But there was a, a, a remnant of faithful believers who could not deny the Lord Jesus, and they began to actually pull away from the official churches, and they began to meet in houses and out in fields in order to worship together and hear preaching from men with courage, this inflamed the tyrant king. He actually began to send out his armies to then go hunt them down and arrest them, inflict just savageries upon them that turn our modern stomachs. What began to be done to them? Here was a pretty typical sentence that was carried out, especially on the preachers, those who organized these events. Men like David Haxton and Andrew Gwilleen had sentences passed where they were brought before crowds and a whole series of tortures were then carried out before an audience intended to inflict fear into the people not to cross the king. Now, I I assure you that I don't try to be graphic just for the sake of being graphic, um, but let me also say if our brothers and sisters go through something, we, we ought to be able to talk about it. David Haxton had his right arm hacked off, which by the way, then he raised his stub to the crowd and he said, as my blessed Lord sealed my salvation with his blood, so I am honored this day to seal his truths with my blood. By the way, testimony after testimony of believers who went through these these tortures, they would even be before the crowds bleeding and would be crying out to the crowds, this is a happy day. Today I be with my Lord. They would call out to the crowds and plead with them to repent and turn to Christ. The man, he, he doesn't have his hand and he's crying out and pleading with people to be saved. And you, you know, you'd have to imagine in that day, one of the biggest obstacles to trusting Christ in truth, to repenting would be the fear that this would be done to me. And time after time, these believers called out and said, don't fear, I'm, I'm more, I've been more nervous at times I stood up to preach than I am today. The Lord has been near me. This is, it has, he has made my experience sweet. Many of them said, welcome death. Today I will be with my Lord. Do not fear this suffering. Andrew Gwilin and others, after he had his right hand cut off, he was then hanged by the neck, but not for the purpose of killing him, but just simply for the torture. He was then dropped to the ground Where the hangman hangman approached with a sharp knife, carved open his chest, removed his still beating heart, impaled it on the end of the knife to show the crowds. His body was then desecrated, dismembered, and his parts hung throughout the land of Scotland. If you traveled through the lands of Scotland in those days, you would see the body parts Of believers hanging at the city gates, the king inflicting fear on the people. You do not cross me. And yet, thousands upon thousands of believers chose suffering, they refused to cower. This group of Christians may have been some of the most prepared for death of any believers I've encountered from history. They did not fear the sword. They did not fear pain. They didn't enjoy it, but they did not fear it. They feared God, and that fear emboldened them to do what was valiant. Christian, the fear of something will drive you. It is, it is not a question of does fear affect you. We, we are creatures that have been made. You are going to fear. We were made to fear God. And when we do, it dissolves other kinds of fears that threaten our hearts. And so in our first session, I appreciate our brother who preached on the fear of the Lord, on what it is. Um, my task, what I'm going to try to do here is talk a bit about its application. Um, we'll still touch on some of the same things of concerning what it is. But we want to address what is this then, um, how does this get implemented into our lives? What does this do in us? And so here are just the two simple points i'm going to talk about number one the fear of man and its effects and number two the fear of god and its effects so number one let's begin with the fear of man consider the passage with me that we just read jesus looks to his people and essentially says to them look you, you need to know from the very beginning here what to expect we get along of things long wrong about the Christian life when we are expecting different kinds of things. You need to know what you are to expect. If you are going to be my people, then you are going to suffer. They hate me. The world hates me. The world opposes me. They're about to kill me. Don't get any ideas that you're somehow going to be able to be faithful to me, but be loved by the world and have their approval. But he said, you're going to have to decide from the beginning to be okay with this. And here is the key to do it do not fear them. This passage is is all about fear. Verse 26, do not fear. Verse 28, do not fear. Verse 31, do not fear. Verse, 30, verse 20, Then going back to verse 28, the, the hinge of the passage, the command that then uh, pervades everything else that he says here is he says, do fear him. So there's a change. Three times we're commanded not to fear something. And then there is this command that uh, gives truth to everything else that he says where he does command to fear. Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So in other words, the life of a Christian, the life of a Christian is not to be a life that contains the fear of death, the fear of pain, the fear of afflictions, the fear of men's frowns. It is to be a life that is courageous, but the courage actually comes from the one fear that we are to have. That one fear <coughs> removes other fears. Because standing next to the mountain, the pebbles look small. The one fear that we are to keep has this way of reducing and purifying and removing these other fears. And so the two simple commands here are do not fear this, but do fear him So what, what, what does it mean then to fear man? L- let's describe it just briefly and see if some examples might help. Fearing man is when we make an idol out of the approval and applause of others. It is to love praise from men. It is to lust for honor or position for some people's temptations. For others, it's maybe just to sit at the cool kids' table at lunch. For some, it is just, I don't want the world's scorn. It is, for some, the need to be liked. I need people's approval. I fear if, if I have their disapproval. So, so, you know, just watch how it works. Four, four steps. I love praise from men. I need praise from men, so I fear their disapproval. Therefore, action. I'll do what it takes in order to get the approval that I so crave. It can be as simple as kids in a classroom or adults in the break room who get nervous in that opportunity for evangelism and so cower it also happens when there's that idea that sweeps through culture that everybody's latching onto and everybody is, is grabbing onto and Hollywood is promoting it, but then there are some who see that it is dangerous, but instead of speak out or oppose it, it's put your head down, try not to speak up, and come up with excuses of things like, well, you just can't say stuff like that anymore. It's just to join the groupthink of the day. The fear of man is a particular temptation to pastors, preachers of the gospel because of the nature of the work. It is, okay? And a man who is going to lead a church is going to have to address this in our lives. That that desire to just always try to keep everybody happy just always not try to uh, upset people in, in what is said. Always in this quest to keep hearing the attaboys, the, the pat on the back, or at least to, to, to not get people uh, ticked off by what is said. It leads to avoiding subjects that need to be addressed. I would submit to you there are at least 50 different truths from the Bible that need to be preached so that we understand the will of God, the word of God, but are regularly avoided even in Bible-believing churches who affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, all because of the fear we don't want to upset this group, that group, or this one over here. What is also dangerous is that all of that can be happening in my heart, and I'm completely unaware of it. See, this is is one of those dangerous things. We're always in danger of self-delusion. It is very often the case that when we fear man, we don't recognize that we do. And so as we start to define it, and we could list off just dozens of of ways that we see it, we, we start to notice this is everywhere. You know, this is, this is the world all around us, and, and uh, you know, regardless of how courageous you, you, you may be, and I know sometimes, you know, uh, I'm going to say some hard things today. I get it that there's some nature. We're preaching to the choir here, okay? I found out we still got to do that, okay? But wherever you are in this, surely you have felt, surely you have felt this in your life, and we have seasons where it is there more than in others, why is it that we get nervous in evangelistic situations? It is the fear of man. So what does the fear of man produce? We can make a long list. Let me, let me just offer some that I think are pertinent for, for what we're doing today. Let me offer four things, four ways, uh, four, four effects of the fear of man. Number one, the fear of man produces cowardice. Produces cowardice, differing levels, differing degrees of cowardice. By the way, it's also not always obvious cowardice. This is more of this danger. It's possible to get to a place where I can pretend to be courageous. I can pretend boldness, but really in day-to-day life make cowardly decisions in small ways. Secondly, it produces bottle-rocket ministries which may take off quickly but burst just as quickly because they are ministries that are always relying on the latest fad because when your goal is just keep people happy, what's the tactic that you use? The tactic that is used is not, as our brother preached, show God. The tactic is always pandering. It's blowing smoke. It's, 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 it's always addressing everything revolving around man and your desires and we want everybody to feel good whenever they leave here. That produces bottle rocket ministries and it is just one gimmick after another. Thirdly, because the chief motive is the attempt to please man, instead of the burning desire to please God, it produces man-centered ways of thinking in an entire group, in an entire church. A church that is fed with man-centered preaching adopts man-centered thinking, and that, which then leads to man-centered living. Man-centered ministries, man-centered preaching that does not fear God then leads to Nominalism, lukewarmness, and a gimmick-heavy way of ministering. Rather than rooting all things in the glory of God, the chief end of man, that the Father's great desire is to exalt the name of his Son. We are his happy slaves who are delighted to surrender ourselves. And if that means being butchered, then glory be to God. Instead, it is a pandering kind of preaching and teaching and ministry. And then fourthly, let me suggest to you that the fear of man and the lack of fear of God is one of, one of, but a principal one of, the Principal reasons for the compromise, lukewarmness, and nominalism within the church in our day. The smaller that we see God, the less fire there will be to honor God. The bigger we see God, the more zeal will burn inside of us. But it leads many Christians to puddles of mediocrity Because when the idea is just always preached, all God wants for me is just to be happy now. This does not produce Adoniram Judson's. This does not produce covenanters. This does not produce men and women who are willing to bleed and puke and die in order to serve Christ. It is always about the me, the me, the me. And just as Jesus said in Matthew 6, that you cannot... Love God and money. That also goes for every other idol as well. We cannot love God and love the approval of men. We cannot fear God and fear man at the same time. So then secondly, consider the fear of God and its effects. If you look at verse 28 again, Jesus tells us not to fear those who can kill the body. Now we do need to let that sink in a little bit. And and by the way, more than just today. Like when you lay in bed at night, let it sink in and think deeply. A great deal of what we've talked about so far is the fear of man just addressing man's disapproval. But you see what Jesus tells us here, do not fear what man can do to you. Does your imagination ever run wild with all of the painful things that man can do? Like we've just talked about a bit. Jesus says, do not fear people because the worst that they can do to you, torture, mutilate, dismember, kill, that's it, and that's nothing. How does he say that? How does he say, you know, in a sense, what man can do to you is nothing, so do not fear them. Sometimes my imagination can run wild. I read about the covenanters and I think, oh man, would I have the courage to say, to confess Christ in truth. But Jesus here says, it's nothing. It's nothing. So how is it that he can say that? The reason that Jesus can say that torture, mutilation, dismemberment, and death is nothing is because it is nothing in comparison with eternity See, this is is always the difficulty we're having. It's looking at the now instead of the real reality, the full reality that we don't yet see. If you and I could visit hell for 30 seconds, for 30 seconds and hear the groans, if we could look on the awful sights, If we could make eye contact with a man in torment and we read in his face that he knows this is his doom forever. And then if we were allowed to go straight and visit heaven for 30 seconds to hear the the thundering roar of angels, not in some technical rote kind of bowing, but in enraptured delight around the throne of God, some of them even covering their eyes so as not to look on his holiness and they are falling and crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God the Almighty. See the host of heaven falling and throwing their crowns and see Jesus seated on his throne. The point is we would get it. Part of our, when we fear man, we don't get it because we're not looking at the mountain, we're looking at the pebbles and the pebbles look big. If we could see God now, we would fear him because you can't do anything else. It's impossible. No one who comes before God, who experiences even a fraction of the weight of his glory comes away from that encounter unimpressed. It's a pretty fun study to do sometime tracking through the Bible uh, people who encountered the glory of God and, and their reactions. It's one of the ways that, that when you can't describe something with words to try to convey some of the weight and power of something, look at the reactions of the people who encounter it. So there's Moses who fell on his face and covered up and whose face shone when he saw uh, uh, the backside of the glory of God. There's, as our brother preached, the, the Israelites who thought they were going to die from hearing God's voice. That's pretty powerful. They thought they were going to die from hearing the voice of God. It, it overwhelmed them such. Daniel was given a vision which left him sick for days. The apostle John fell over as a dead man and the spirit had to pick him back up again in order to keep going. Peter, James, and John fell on their faces, not in a bored motion of, of you know, um, institutional reverence or something. They couldn't help it. It was involuntary. They tremble. Everyone in the Bible that you encounter that God even pulled back, just a, a fraction of his glory, what do they do? They fall, they fall, they fall. You can't do anything else. On the last day, when all of the nations are gathered, Those on the earth, above the earth, under the earth are all gathered around the throne and the Father exalts the name of his Son. What is everyone doing? They bow and they confess that Jesus is Lord. Listen to me. Caesar falls. Hitler falls. Atheists fall. Hollywood falls. They're trembling before him. And you know what they're not doing? They're not grumbling. They're not giving smart aleck shouts up to God. They can't. They can't. Romans 2 says that on the day of judgment, even their own consciences will convict them. Meaning they're not even able in their own hearts secretly to to give some kind of revolt against God. No, everyone bows, everyone falls, everyone says with their lips, Jesus is Lord in the presence of him who causes angels to shout glory. Fearing God is us seeing that now. It is us seeing that by faith Now, see, because we don't yet see it with our physical eyes, what does Hebrews say? Hebrews says we see in a different kind of way. It is reading the word, believing the word, and so it is then coming to a place that there's a way that we see it, metaphorically see it, we see it by faith. And so here is the question then. What are the effects of the fear of God? Again, we could list Hundreds, but let me rattle off five effects that I think are significant for what we're considering. Number one, the fear of God produces within us worship with a capital W. It produces worship like the angels worship. By the way, there's a reason why in scripture we're shown those those images of, of heaven. We need them now. We need to know how people respond to God in heaven because it informs what our worship should look like. It produces within us a captivation with the glory of God. It grips us because we see, we behold more the weight of his glory. And by the way, this is an ever-increasing thing. So this is not a light switch of, you know, we're all going to leave here today and now we fear God. No, it's this is in degrees. This is for the next however many years you have left on this earth, we're going to keep growing in degrees, and the more I fear God, the less I will fear man. And there will be days where it's, We're complicated creatures, but we keep moving forward. That worship that ignites within us, think of worship, think of zeal, think of joy, think of hope as a fire inside of our hearts. It can be big at times. It can be embers at others. We are to feed the fire. The fearing God produces within us worship that then stokes the flames to go out and serve in other ways. Number two, the fear of God produces within us a burning passion to please Him. If we love if we love God and long for his approval and not for man, it does things in our desires, in our motives. Seeing who he is, having an accurate picture of what reality is really like, leads us to have the eternal perspective. If you long to please God, then your heart will, your heart will ache to die to sin. When we long to please God, that's when we pray things like, God, show me my sin. We're walking in the flesh. We don't pray that prayer. God, show me my sin. God, lead me to die to the sins that my flesh is really enjoying right now. God, correct me. We don't pray those things whenever we're walking in the flesh, but when we fear God and worship has ignited us, we pray for God to make us holy because we long to please Him. The fear of God leads us to live in light of the day of judgment. If When we fear God and long to please Him, it creates within us this eternal perspective that stays in our minds regularly and we measure all things against the day of judgment. The fear of man obsesses over the now. The fear of God is looking for the day that I get my ultimate approval, the, the, the honor that is really worth pursuing. And whatever beheadings, pains, frowns, or sufferings that we endure now only increases my delight on that day. It only increases the reward of the final day. You get, if you are beheaded for Christ, you will come to the day of judgment and you will count it worth it. Okay? Nobody gets to the day of judgment, gets their reward and be like, this? No, it is. I would do it a thousand times again. Like I, all I had to do was get carved open, and I get this. It creates within us this comprehension of what glory indeed, what, what, what real reward is. We live with a desire to please Him. Number three, the fear of God. Because it produces a desire to please God, it produces faithfulness, obedience and a life of sold-out service to his glory and his kingdom because we just see that everything else is useless. The fear of God produces endurance. It forms believers who go the distance because they do not want to disappoint the one whose approval they seek. I think that there is a lot to be meditated on there. I think that one of the ways that some of the love of God has been misconstrued in our modern day is to give the idea that unconditional love and unconditional approval are the exact same thing and they are not, they are not. In Christ, we are safe. That does not guarantee, however, that we are pleasing him. And what we want is on that last day to hear the well done, my good and faithful servant. It is to receive reward. We want our Father to be proud of us in that right kind of way. You know, with, with, with your children, you, you need to give unconditional love, but I, I would argue giving unconditional approval is not good, is not godly. There's a difference between those two. In Christ, we have unconditional love, but it is not the same as unconditional approval. And I think that a lot of times today, that kind of idea of, of so many just walking around of it doesn't matter what I do, I'm loved by Jesus, so I'll sin to my heart's content leads to nominalism, lukewarm and lukewarmness, and compromise. We need to see, we need to have a desire built inside of us. I want to please him. I want his approval. I don't want his frown to come to the last day and be like um, that passage that Paul talks about in Corinthians where he mentions those who basically get there by the skin of their teeth and they've lost all reward because it's all burned up. What a waste. I don't want that. What reward. I want to honor him. This only arises when there is a burning desire to please him. So it produces faithfulness. It produces endurance, going the distance. You know, this is why that Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why is it the beginning of wisdom? It's because we're not gonna walk into the arena of wisdom. We're not gonna walk in the ways that are wise until we fear him and desire to please him and live with the day of judgment in our minds. And along these lines, the fear of God produces pastors who don't quit which is a needed conversation today. I'd like to spend, I, I mean, I mean, really a whole sermon here, but obviously can't, but just to briefly say, America's pastors are quitting at unbelievable rates. Unbelievable rates. And there are no doubt lots of reasons why. You may have opinions, I know that I have some, but surely some of it. If I if I may say a a hard word and ask you to receive it, surely some of it is that we are not raising up men who are willing to go the distance. We have fallen for some lies. We have fallen for lies about what the qualifications are. We have fallen for lies about what a pastor needs for training. I'm not opposed to seminaries, but we have fallen for the lie that it's the seminary's job to prepare the pastor. It's not. It's the church's job. It's the church's job because when you look at, well, first of all, look at what do we typically look for in a pastor if somebody's gonna hire somebody? A lot of wrong things. Where does scripture put the emphasis? Character. Character. Like 18 out of the 20 things mentions is character. A man must know God love God, fear God, have a steadfast desire to please God. Seminary can't give him that. Churches can. We must be raising up from within our congregations, you know, future pastors for our own churches and then sending out to the nations and and need to be understanding what is here and, and, and the fear of God produces a desire to please him and men who will go the distance, the willingness to go the distance begins with how a man sees God. It begins with the internal desire. The fear of God, here's number four. The fear of God produces believers who tremble at the word of God. Isaiah 66:2, but to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. There is a difference between believing the word and trembling at the word. Trembling is a farther place than just receiving it. You know, as as Baptists, we fought the battle of inerrancy and won. Thank God. But there is a battle that we have not yet won. And it is the battle of taking the word of God and treating it like it is spoken from the lips of the living God who sits on the throne and it is to be obeyed in every single part. It is the battle of trembling at the word of God and not treating it like a trifle. Not treating it like a manual that can be taken or pushed away depending on what ideas we have. The fear of God produces uh, believers who heed the warnings of scripture and tremble. The fear of God produces believers who say, I would rather die than fall to adultery. I would rather die than mar the witness of the glory of the name of Christ. I would rather die and fall into some presumptuous sin. It produces convictions. It produces a burning passion within us. It produces Christians who shudder at the thought of lukewarmness and want to press on to zeal and to glorify him. And number five, the fear of God produces courage and even fearlessness. The fear of man produces cowardice but the fear of God produces courage because I'm no longer afraid of the pebbles because I see how big the mountain is. There is a freeing effect that the fear of God has upon our souls because it reduces the, the fear of man, the fear of pain, the fear of death. And you, you've, you've probably heard this before. There is a difference between courage and fearlessness. Okay? Courage is when we feel nervousness, may even feel some fear, but we choose to do the valiant thing anyway, okay? Courage is a must. In the Bible, we are called to exert courage. We must, if we don't have courage, we will fall. We won't speak when we need to speak. We'll cower. We'll put our tail between our legs. Courage is a must. Fearlessness, on the other hand, is when we just don't feel the fear Now, there's a a kind of fearlessness you and I probably had back when we were 16 years old and just didn't know a lot of things, okay? I'm not talking about that kind of ignorant, immature fearlessness. I'm talking about the kind, though, that has felt the fear but battled it. Because there is a lot of internal heart work that comes with all of these virtues that God calls us to have. There is a kind of fearlessness that comes when we have felt the fear, but we fight it, we battle it, we pray, we fast, we seek the word, we encourage ourselves, we act like David, we strengthen ourselves in the Lord in order to mount up courage once again. And after fighting the fear can come to a place of fearlessness. So we must have courage. Fearlessness would be the goal. Which of these does Jesus call us to? Do not fear. Fear. He calls us to go beyond courage. He calls us to go further even than choosing to do the valiant thing. He calls us to come to a place that even in the heart at the root in the secret places we lose the fear of man. It produces courage and fearlessness. When it does this it produces boldness, not a pretended boldness, there's a huge difference, but a boldness that wants to honor God, And I am going to say something that is possible you may disagree with when you first hear it. I ask you to consider it. The average man thinks himself to be courageous. The average man automatically watches Rambo and says, that's me. (laughs) It's not. And I want to submit to you, particularly at this point in this time in history the average man acts in cowardly ways often. I say that not to try to shout some kind of indictment. I say that for my heart and our hearts to deeply consider, ask God, Lord, show me where I'm acting cowardly. Show me where I have fear of men and pain and death and where I have not I have not walked into, where I have not addressed some things with my children that I need to be addressing, where I have not taught on a subject in Sunday school that needs to be addressed. Uh, Two years ago, my wife had a, a, a terrifying health scare and I found out I was not as strong as I thought I was. I thought I was more prepared for death than what I actually was. I found out that I was a lot like Peter on the night that he told Jesus, I don't care about these other guys. I will follow you to death. I am willing to die for you. Peter wasn't lying. He thought he was there. I say it as a warning. It is easy to have some prideful, blind bravado and march around just believing I'm brave, I'm courageous. There needs to be some sober and solemn examination and asking God to reveal things and seeing I must grow in this rather than just say, oh, I've already got this one taken care of. No, this is in degrees. There is work to do from this day forward. But little by little, the fear of God will build these beautiful things, these desires to please him, and will remove from us a joyful thing where we lose the fear of man and the fear of pain. Because it all just seems so small. And by the way, along those lines, Christian, it is one of your chief duties before God to prepare for death. It is one of your chief duties to bring your heart to a place that you are content and you can, in honesty, say, it is well with my soul. And we know believers who have even gone beyond that to the place that they longed. They longed to be in the presence of him who saved them. The fear of God is pivotal to that. So asking the last question coming to the the, the most application here, how does the fear of God affect our churches and how we do ministry? It shapes our ministries because it shapes us. What does the church need? Is it too generic to say God? We, but that is what I mean. Don't you grow tired? Don't you grow tired of the, 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 the hippest new tactic that's going to be irrelevant in 15 minutes. Don't you grow weary with that stuff. Show them God. Be shaped yourself with an, a God-entranced vision of his supremacy and greatness and sovereignty. Let it produce within you all that it means and then go be contagious. Go rub off. Go, 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 let this spread like a passion. What the church needs is not the next tactic. What we need is to see Christ. What we need is a fire within us that is willing to sweat, bleed, puke, and die for the glory of Christ. The lukewarmness, nominalism, empty gimmicky religion that so defines the church in our day has at least come in part by leaders and believers who are bored with God, unimpressed. And if anyone is unimpressed with God, here is what we know, they have not beheld him. Because to behold him, no one leaves unimpressed. And so part of the application and pleading that I have with you, I hope I'm not taking uh, stuff away from the next sermon that will be preached, is to plead with you to come to a resolve from this day forward, I am going to begin to seek God in a way that I've never even thought about before. I am going to begin to read my Bible like it is spoken from the lips of the living God whom angels fall before. I am going to begin uh, to, to, to live in a way that matches this. I'm going to stop playing games. Christian, you be shaped by the fear of God. You be transformed and you will be contagious. This is meat and root and not empty trifles of gimmicks in the latest tactic. Man-centered religion is destroying us. We need to see him who sits on the throne and define our existence by him and root our ministries in the exaltation of the name of Christ We need to fear God and nothing else. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we do ask that we will take your truths that we've considered and Lord, that you will bring real change, real resolve. I pray, oh God, that it leads to days ahead of labor and sweat that we will seek your face and honor you. Lord, please bless the rest of the time we're going to spend to the glory of your name. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.